when I was in college, I actually flew quite a bit. Um, I, I hadn't grown up flying or anything. I, this is how I grew up. I'm from rural Oklahoma. I thought flying was for rich people. I thought flying and stairs were for rich people, not for people like me. And so I didn't fly until I was older, but I flew quite a bit in college. I did a lot of missions. I lived overseas for a while. And, and so I flew quite a bit. You know, one of the things that really impressed me when we were leaving Knoxville on Monday to, to fly to New Orleans was the fact that although I still had to take off my shoes, which I'm not a big fan of, you know, I didn't have to take my laptop out. I didn't have to take my, the liquids that you keep in the bag. You could leave it all in the bag. It was amazing. Uh, of course, then when we left New Orleans, I tried to do that again, and they told me I had to take everything out. So uh, their security stuff isn't as good as Knoxville's, apparently. But that word security, uh, you might think on the one hand of, of like the airport or, or maybe a prison or, or somewhere like that, I don't know, or, or a store. And it has security. It's meant to protect and to keep people out, to defend whatever it is. In the case of a prison, it's meant to keep people in, but that's beside the point. But we think of security as defense, you know, protection. We also think of security sometimes as like comfort. I think of like little kids, you know, who have their security blankets that they keep around. You always think of Linus from Charlie Brown. It doesn't matter how dirty that thing is. He's carrying around his blanket and dragging it around because it brings them comfort. You know, it's appropriate this morning as we read this psalm thinking about security uh, that, that, we're, that we're preaching this on Father's Day. Uh, because maybe one of the few images our culture has left, and maybe it's fading, I don't know, is the image of a father who both protects and comforts. Uh, a father who disciplines, but also nurtures and cares for. And an image of security, both protection, provision, but the utmost care. As we look at this psalm, we see that the, the, the psalmist has journeyed into Jerusalem now, and, and is seeing the security that exists within God's place for God's people. And we see that God's people are completely and eternally secure. It begins in verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now that word trust, you may be thinking like I do. The first thing I, know, I think of when I read that word is like faith belief. You know, we say that someone is saved. They, they have believed in Jesus. They have, they have had placed their faith in Jesus. They have trusted in Jesus. But that's, in this context, not exactly what that word trust means. It, 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 it more means to, to be confident in, to feel secure, to be unconcerned. So the psalmist is saying, those who are confident in the Lord, those who feel secure in the Lord. Those who are unconcerned with the things around them because they are in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They have security in the Lord. Now Mount Zion referring to like the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, kind of up on a hill, is a picture of something that you can't... Can you imagine? Can any one of you imagine moving a mountain Putting putting one hand on it, kind of, or maybe two, and kind of, maybe you get some people behind you to brace you, and you really give it a good. It's not going to move. It's going to stand forever. Now, now we all know over many, 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 many centuries, maybe it'll get a little higher or a little lower, but for the most part, it's just going to stand there. In our lifetimes, we will never see a mountain move, not in any way that we could ever notice. And so, the psalmist is trying to draw our attention to that imagery. 
that those who are secure in the Lord are like this mountain. They cannot be moved. They abide forever. They are completely secure in the Lord. There is nothing and no one that can change the fact that they are trusting in the Lord. You know, and the important thing isn't that they trust in the Lord, that they feel secure. It's not the verb in that sentence that's very important, is it? It's the object in that sentence that's important. It's what their trust is in that matters. It's what their trust is in that changes their circumstances, that makes them like a mountain that cannot be moved. So it's not the fact that they are trusting people that's important. It's the fact that they are trusting in the Lord. That, that means they're completely secure. And they are eternally secure, it says, forever. Verse 2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Again, using the imagery of mountains. Now some of you, I believe, have been to Jerusalem before. And you could look up, if you're in Jerusalem, yes, it's kind of set on a hill, but you could look around it and see a bunch of mountains, can't you? Especially to the east. It's because when you look up, there, although it's on its own little mount, on its own little hill, there are actually mountains that are larger than it that surround Jerusalem. And so the psalmist, standing in Jerusalem, feeling secure in the Lord, looks to these mountains and says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, providing protection for it, providing protection from its enemies, making it more difficult for them to get there, so the Lord surrounds his people. If you are one of God's people, you have the utmost protection from any evil or anything or anyone that you could ever have, which is the Lord himself. Not just mountains surrounding a city, but the Lord surrounding his people. This is part of the reason Jesus says of God's people, the church, that against the church the gates of hell will not prevail. Against the church there is nothing, no power in hell, nor scheme of man that can ever pluck us from his hand. A beautiful reminder from in Christ alone. This, this view, the, the view that we are eternally secure from now for forever, from the moment of your regeneration, that is your becoming a Christian, until forever, that there is nothing that can change your state, it is a doctrine that, as Southern Baptists, we tend to hold pretty dear. You know, this isn't a doctrine that means if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian, okay? I have plenty of brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with me. They hang out in different churches than I do. And, and they disagree on this doctrine. I, I grew up in a church that disagreed on this doctrine. I went to college knowing that, well, Baptists think once you're saved, you're always saved. And I went to college going, but that seems kind of crazy. So they're going to have to convince me a whole lot. And so I understand uh, that this isn't something that every Christian agrees with. But we believe firmly that the scriptures teach that when you are in the Lord, when you are in Christ Jesus, when you are a Christian, when you are regenerate, when your life has been transformed, when you have died to your old self and become alive to Christ, in that moment, nothing is going to change it. 
We, we sing this in our psalms, or in our, our hymns, in our singing on Sundays. We sing this in the song, song I just mentioned, In Christ Alone. We also sing this in one of the most beautiful hymns we sing, I think, He Will Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. Though I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Though the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. The reality that we are singing from those songs and that we read in the scriptures is that once God has regenerated us, once our lives have been changed, once we are in Christ, there is nothing that can take us out of Christ. Whether it is from hell, whether it is from our own hearts, whether it is from the people around us. And the reality is, although we believe that, as Baptists, we have to recognize that sometimes don't we experience those moments in which we know someone that we have 100% confidence they are saved, and yet they do not prevail. They do not persevere. It looks like they have fallen from the faith they once had. Now, this isn't the main point for us this morning, but it is important to point out that we, we don't understand all those things, but we know that when someone's life has been changed by Christ, truly changed, truly transformed, that they prevail, they persevere to the very end. There is no greater joy, there is no greater joy than a pastor or a preacher or a friend can have than to stand at your funeral and say, it was like every day they were more like Jesus. Their faith continued and persevered. Now, it's not the quality of their faith. Jesus says if you have the littlest of faith, you can move mountains. It's not the amount of faith or the quality of the faith. It's what the faith is in. Listen, if your faith is in a prayer you prayed at five years old, if your faith is in a baptism you got at 12, if your faith is in a church membership you got 40 years ago, but you haven't gone there recently, if your faith is in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how strong that faith is, it will fail. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how weak it is, it will persevere. The littlest faith in Jesus is far greater than the greatest faith in anything else. And so if you're truly trusting Jesus, trusting his work on the cross for your sins, then you can have confidence, you can have assurance that you will persevere to the end. And if there is any part of you that is trusting something else, you need to reckon with that and repent of it. Give it away and recognize that Jesus is the only way. Not your faithfulness, but his. And it says if we do that, we will abide forever. I love that word, abide. I think if we paid attention to that word in Scripture more, maybe we would get a lot more of our theology a little bit better. Uh, because we, you know, if you're, if you're in our circles, Baptist, Protestant, whatever, you've probably heard the great debate on faith versus works. Does your faith save you or do works save you? Well, what gets you to heaven? What allows you when you die to live on with God? Is it faith or is it works? And you know, the Protestants, we always answer, well, it's, it's, God, it's, it's faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone that saves. And, and spoiler alert, I agree with that, okay? And, and I would argue in a different setting, in a different sermon, that you should too. But I want to focus less on that and more on the relationship in faith and works when we use the word abide. Jesus in John 15. Go ahead and turn to John 15 if you wouldn't mind. 
Again, this is about a quarter into your Bibles. John 15, it's the the fourth gospel in our, our scriptures. And just at the very beginning of John 15, verse 4 and 5, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. This word abide, meaning to dwell, to exist within, to be a part of, to participate in, to be in union with, to live out of something. That word abide helps us solve a lot of problems. Because if we are abiding in Christ we will bear fruit. The one who abides in me bears much fruit, Jesus says. The one who does not abide in me bears no fruit. Basically, the imagery Jesus is giving is like, is like if you can imagine a, a trellis with vines on it and it has little, little vines and growths coming off of it. That's us growing off of Jesus. That's us when we dwell in Jesus, living like Jesus. So do our works save us? No, but we should expect them. We should expect that if we are truly in Christ, that we will abide in him. And and, and if for a minute you say, but I have sins that I just can't get over. Oftentimes we try to to, to rid ourselves of sin, and we do it in a way that's actually less helpful. So there's a great sermon by a, a Scottish guy, Chalmers, called The Expulsive Power of a Great Affection, which is a terrible title for a sermon because nobody knows what it means around here but the point is in this sermon he asked this question i love asking people this question how do you get all the air out of an empty glass okay maybe i can come up with some vacuum process maybe i i I don't know how to do it What, what do you do and he says fill it with water and then he says how do you get all the sin out of yourself fill it with jesus when you fill yourself with jesus It will displace the sin in your life. Too often, accountability in the church, discipline in the church, is so focused on pulling sin out of people, it never fills them with the thing that gets rid of it in the first place. That's why you can't turn away from a life of sin without turning toward Jesus. Because if you're just trying to pull all that sin out, it will never come out on its own. We must fill our lives with Jesus. We must abide in Jesus such that we are people whose affections, our desires, are changed to be those of Christ, not those of simple sinners. So God's people are completely and eternally secure. Why? Because of Jesus. We also note that God's security just isn't in our own personal salvation or regeneration or however you want to pitch it. God's enemies are something that God must secure us from. You know, some of us would probably, we go read the Psalms and it talks about, my enemies, my enemies, and we're all like, I don't know, I don't think I have any enemies. Uh, Which, to be fair, maybe you just have less important, you, you don't expect someone to come ransack your house, but you're still arguing about where your fence goes between you and your neighbor, okay? We might have those kinds of enemies. But whether we ourselves have enemies or not isn't the point. You know who does have enemies? God. And it's not just that God has a bunch of enemies outside the church. 
Listen, every single one of us, either now or before we became a Christian, was an enemy of God. We rebelled against God. We disobeyed God. We didn't want to live our lives for God. That's why in the scriptures it says, but God shows us or God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, God gave us that ultimate sacrifice of his very son on the cross for us. God has enemies, and we all were, are his enemies at times. But God's enemies cannot thwart, cannot violate his plans for his people. God has a plan. God has had a plan from the beginning. His plan was to make a people for himself, a people that were defined by the fact that they were in Christ, so that the, the life of Christ, the being of Christ, the person of Christ, the two beings of Christ, could be brought glory. God was making a people for himself. And God's plan of making a people for himself cannot be thwarted by anything you or I are do. That is good news. If there's any good news this morning, it's that God's plans are so secure that we can't mess them up. Can I get an amen for that at least? Yeah, I think so. Romans chapter 8, we all quote verse 28, and I'm going to do it again. Because Romans 8.29 is such a good verse for this. And if you go read the rest of the context, it's still a great verse for this. It's not lost on it. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's enemies cannot thwart his plans. We cannot thwart his plans that he has for his people. All things work together for good. And listen, that doesn't mean that it all looks like we think it should. You know what? You may not get that camper trailer that you really want, so you can go tour, tour the national parks. You know, you may not get that new boat, so you can go fishing on the weekends every weekend. You may not get that new car, that new house, that new job. You may not get those kids you wanted. You may not get the husband or the wife that you wanted. You may not get the things in life that you want, but if we are God's people, we have to look to his word and see that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And that means God has a bigger, greater, more expansive plan than any of us do. It may be that your suffering and not getting what you want is the very thing God is going to use to change your life and the people that are around you, their lives. It may be that God is doing something far greater than you could ever desire for yourself. One of the greatest blessings is that God doesn't answer all our prayers the way we want to. If he did, wouldn't our lives look completely different and be a whole lot worse probably as well? It's a blessing that God answers our prayers according to his will, not according to ours. And that's why our prayers always come with that stipulation, your will be done. So God's enemies cannot thwart God's plans. In verse 3 we see that. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. This psalm uh, in the, the translation we have is one of the most clunky things written. So just bear with me for a moment. But he says, for the scepter of wickedness, you know, the scepter representing the rule or the reign of a king, the scepter of wickedness will not or shall not rest 
on the land allotted to the righteous. God has given a land for his people. In the context of this psalm, it's the holy land. It's Jerusalem. It's the promised land that God had given to his people, Israel. And he's saying the scepter of the wicked, the oppressors, the enemies, those who are coming into control, shall not rest. It shall not remain on the land. A day is coming in which it will be completely gone. And the psalmist is saying this is God's plan. He doesn't want this to to continue. He doesn't want the wickedness to rest on his land. Because if it did, his people would eventually run out of hope. And then they themselves might be tempted to be people of wickedness doing wrong to those who are oppressing them. In this verse, we see that God is, is dealing with the wickedness that exist among us. And when there is wickedness, when there is sinfulness, when there is evil that rests among us, this psalm is telling us it won't be forever. A day is coming where it will completely end. A day is coming in which God will remove that that rule or reign of the wicked so that we might have relief. And one day that will happen forever and ever with no end. Verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. God's people, faced with God's enemies, they band together. They come together, they join together in order to persevere together, to endure together, to get through this life together. And if it's not entirely clear, that's the church. You know, God didn't want us all to be individual Christians all on our own. He wanted us to be together. He wanted us to be united. And that's how we're going to get through this life. We're calling on the Lord. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. We're saying, Lord. And we say, knowing Christ has come, Lord, we're doing our best. We're good not because we're good, but because you're good, and we are in Christ. Uh, we're, we're upright in our hearts. I mean, we, we're, we're failures, but, but we're trying our best. We're upright because Christ is upright. And we, but we also acknowledge that there are some of us who turn aside to their crooked ways. There are some of us who don't stay on that narrow path, who don't, who don't endure But if we band together, we can persevere together. You know, in the church, it's one of the few places where it should be when done in a loving, kind way, gentle way, that we can call each other on our sin. And listen, if you've never had anyone call you on your sin, it's not because you're perfect. It's probably because either you've never been a church member or because in the churches you've been in, they didn't realize their responsibility to help you be more like Jesus. You know, and I'm not saying we're going to have, that the churches have great trials about whether you sinned on some issue. That's not what I'm describing at all. But, you know, you've got to have some people in your life who say, brother, that was the stupidest thing you could have said. That hurt that person. Someone who says, sister, you need to stop talking about everybody's business but your own. That's not good for you. 
I like how everything's getting even more silent now. We need, a, we need a place and we need a people who are willing to, to risk the relationship for the sake of making us more like Jesus. We can't do that on our own. You can't look in the mirror long enough to figure out all what's wrong with you. But if you go among other people, because you have strengths and you have weaknesses, but so do they. And some of your strengths are some of their weaknesses and some of their weaknesses are your strengths. And you can get in a room and say, I need help. And they can say, oh yeah, you surely do. And you can, as James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We need each other. And, and, and if we don't have each other, we are going to follow our own crooked ways. We will. We just will. That's how we are. That's how we're wired. That's how we've been wired. But together we can persevere to the very end. And we can all sit at a funeral and cry. Not just tears of sadness that we're going to miss them, but tears of joy. Knowing they're in their Savior's arms. Why? Because every day, every day, it just seems they were more like Jesus to us. And we know they are secure in the arms of Jesus. Let's pray.